subatomic gigantic occasion was a sweep in Japan nation when along came a dude with an ultra attitude, a common Morado, the greatest kicker of Japan. And of all man. Last you short now, baby. To not talk big now, baby. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Kaiju Conversation. I'm your host, Elisha. And joining me, as always, my lovely co-host and editor. Hello, I am Rex. And we are back at it again for the third episode of 2024. Two episodes, two episodes this month, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice, not going to lie. It, it Honestly, it felt kind of weird only doing one episode last month. Yeah, <laughs> not that I minded the break, but was a bit strange coming off uh last year's pace yeah though admittedly doing two episodes this month has been kind of a strain on me not gonna lie <laughs> yeah but you also have other projects at the moment so yeah which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit here in a little bit um but here we are before we dive into what's going on what what you know what we're doing there is something that we need to talk about because I think we haven't talked about it since we got the email um, back in December. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the third episode, I think, since we got that email that we've recorded, and I just have totally forgot to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So we got an email from a from a website called Feedspot. Um, they're an analytical podcast site um, that like keeps track of like social media followers, downloads, like something to do with the algorithm and, you know, how many episodes, how frequently you upload and all that. We got an email from them and they were like, congratulations, you made it onto our top 10 kaiju podcasts for 2023. I was like, oh, that's cool. I bet we're like number seven. You know, there's, there's plenty of other like legacy podcasts i would say like older ones that have been here for so long like uh the kaiju kingdom podcast or kaiju transmissions um right stuff like that i was like okay so those you know they'll they'll probably beat us and i go onto the site because they, they have the list linked and we're at number one <laughs> and i'm like that's Whoa. unexpected so we charted number one and then I was like, I wonder if they have a tokusatsu list. So I looked up tokusatsu, and guess what? What? Number one on tokusatsu as well. What do you mean we're too good? <laughs> I honestly, I'm genuinely shocked. Like, I was not expecting anything like that. Um, And just, you know, having that, I was kind of like, it really kind of took me, like, I was, I was kind of really surprised by it. And like, I, if I'm gonna be honest, like, I, 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 you and I like worked very hard last year, like researching, yeah. keeping up on our schedule, um, editing on your end, Rex, doing the graphics, doing the promotion stuff. Um, we did a lot, so you know that, you know that hard work, really, really goes to show. Um, Apparently, some people think it paid off. <laughs> I I know there's a 
potential another announcement we can make here probably in about a month is when we'll find out if anything else is coming from our uh, output from last year. Um, oh. So we'll find out then if something happens, I'll, I'll definitely be like, Hey guys, look at this. If not, Oh, well, like I, either way, I'm very proud of what we did last year and I'm mm. very thankful to everybody who's listened. So a huge uh, thanks to you, the listeners. Um, congratulations, Rex, and congratulations, Kaiju Conversation. Congratulations, Elijah. Um, so now that we got that housekeeping out of the way, Rex, how have you been, man? I've been doing pretty good. Had a fairly chill week, all things considered. I envy you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can most surely imagine that. <laughs> Well, that's good. Um, have you watched any tokusatsu lately? A uh, little bit of Garo. Been rewatching the original series as well as you know, caught up with um, Hagane Otsugimono, the newest show. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Having fun Is with that... that. Okay. Is there anything else you've uh, you've checked out? Well, outside of that. Uh, closest thing to Tokusatsu otherwise is with you. I watched episodes six and seven of Monarch. Was it six and seven? Yes. Or was it five? Okay. Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Yeah. And uh, that's, yeah, that's that's what I watched this week too. <laughs> Which, I mean, they were pretty good. They're, I I think the show's starting you to... You got a bit of Godzilla? A little bit of Godzilla. Um, honestly, I really feel like the show is kind of starting to stagnate in terms of like getting better. Yeah. Now that's, that's not to say it's getting bad. Like I want to say it's episode like three or four. Um, what was the one you disliked? Okay. I've, I've since rewatched episode four and actually realized it's pretty good. See, I episode four would be the only one that I would say I didn't like. And then I would say, for the majority, the rest are okay or decent. Uh, and then I think there's, like, one that's actually pretty good. I'd imagine um, that's episode one or two for you. Yeah, it, it maybe both are pretty good. Mm -hmm. So, like, I mean, I've been enjoying it, but it's not like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I've been waiting for from a Godzilla-based television show. But like I, I I'll I'll work with it. Like I I'm, I don't hate it. It's better than 2014. It's better than King it of is. the Monsters. It's better than. It's certainly better than Godzilla versus Kong. I would um, argue it's the best thing in the MonsterVerse. Skull Island still has it beat, and I haven't seen uh, or not not Skull Kong Skull Island has it uh, beat. I have not watched Skull Island yet to confirm nor deny that one. I mean, it's better than the Skull Island anime. I'm not. I'm not going to be surprised if it is Kong when Skull I inevitably Island, I watch it. Better than as well. I, I think Kong Skull Island still has it beat. I think the visuals in Kong Skull Island are still peak visual. Uh, in See, the monster for me, verse. my issue with Kong Skull Island is that I just find the two main leads really boring, and so like whenever it's not John Goodman, um. Samuel John C. Jackson and John C. Riley or Kong, I find the movie a bit dull otherwise. 
the visuals are nice. So I'll, I'll agree with you there. And it did get nommed for a Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Oh yeah, it did, didn't it? But we getting back on track here. Um, I've been very busy. So I've heard. So that's why I haven't watched a lot of Tokusatsu. Um, one thing I can talk about now. Um, I think I could have talked about this last recording. Um, I think or no, I think it was just about to be announced. Titanic Creations is doing a articulated figure of Yonguri yes. from the 1967 film Yonguri Monster from the Deep. And yours truly was the person to help them to get the license. <laughs> Whenever they made their call for like needing help in, in securing, securing the rights, um, I checked in with them. Uh, I, I offered my first few thoughts, which was MGM Studios, now owned by Amazon. I knew it wasn't Kino Lorber because they had lost the rights. Um, they had already reached out to Amazon and MGM Studios, which ended in nothing. Toei did not have the rights. So I went to one of my contacts and I was like, hey, we're looking for this uh, license. Where do you have any ideas? And he he helped us out and uh, delivered the contact information. Um, turned out, turns out that much like how Space Monster Wang Magui has uh, been given to the Korean Film Archive, uh, Yonguri is the same thing now, which makes sense because uh, Kim Ki Duk, the director, has passed away. The writer for the films passed away. The producers passed away, and the uh, company. Far East Entertainment um, has been debunked for decades. Mm. And the U.S. distributor didn't have complete ownership and the Japanese distributor did not have uh, complete ownership. So those rights have since reverted back. Outside of, I think, MGM does in fact own the AIP version um, because that's who Kino went through to license the film. But they've since lost the license, so now the film is waiting for somebody new to pick it up. But, hey, we got we got the character licensed. Um, I've sent a couple pitches for what they can include. Um, and then we should see. I'm going to try and help them with uh, some marketing mm -hmm. um, through some of my outlets. And... Uh, whatever else I can do to help them get uh, get it out there. The model, the the 3D render, was made by Dope Pope. It looks amazing. Um, they're going to be doing a six-inch articulated figure in the same scale as Gorgo. Nice. Um, and then they do plan on doing a, I want to say it's the 30-centimeter X-plus-esque um, oh. uh, figure which I will also be probably grabbing that simply because it's Yonguri and uh, I kind of helped make this happen. So, um, so that's, that's, I'm pretty proud of that. That's, that's my first official Kaiju work. Yeah. Um, and it's not even the only thing you've got in store at the moment, is it? <laughs> yes. Um, I can't. So as of when this recording goes live, it might be announced or it might be just around the corner. Um, but I, and, and I've hinted at this 
I've been working extensively on a project. I actually just interviewed somebody earlier tonight of this recording on the project and worked on that interview and how it, you know, works in with the rest of the project. Yeah. Um, Rex, you are a creative consultant on it. And so is uh, my friend, Danny DeMana, who. So I guess anybody... that makes up my first official kaiju work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Based. Um, based. Too based. So <laughs> I've got that in the works and I'm actually uh, this, this project I'm on. Technically I've, I will be doing four things um, for the project. It just so happens that I have done two of the four and I'm like 75% done with the third one. And then the fourth one is a tiny little project I'm going to be doing um, next week. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's just waiting for the announcement, which uh, admittedly is going to be kind of big for me just because, uh, of the opportunity it has given me. And this kind of, it's, it's a story that has now gone full circle, um, but could lead (laughs) to more, it could lead to more, uh, possible projects in the future, both, um, with the company that I'm working with and with, uh, the people I'm working with, we'll say. Right. Both of which are awesome and I've already uh I'm I'm already set to do another project. It's just a matter of when do we get the green light to start working on it and when can I get the assets I need to work on it. So that I you know, that means I've got that project in the works. Um so I've got three official kaiju if you want to count the three smaller ones, it's gonna it's a total of uh six kaiju official kaiju projects i'm working on um through probably june and then it's g-fest which i'm going to be paneling at more than likely based off of what i've submitted and what people that i know have submitted and what i'm included on um so that's another thing that's coming up too that i i guess i can say that so yeah i the reason i haven't been watching a lot of tokusatsu simply due to the fact that i'm too busy too busy working on kaiju and tokusatsu. That's a weird sentence to say. <laughs> so whenever we do our next recording, which is going to be weird because of how our recording schedule is following this episode. Yeah, um, that's, that's true. <laughs> I probably will be talking about my next project. That is official. I already know, like, I I guess I can say this. Two of the four projects for this big project are done. They've been sent off and they're done. Um, And then, like I said, one of them's like 75% of the way done. And the other is going to be like a really tiny, like, once I get the assets I need, it's going to be like four hours worth of work. Um, So that I'm not too worried about. That I can right. do pretty quick. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, so Elisha's been busy, and as much as he would like to watch Tokusatsu, he has not been able to. Mm. He also has a regular job 
that takes up at least 40 hours of his time. So, yeah. Busy life. So, aren't we covering any Tokusasa today? Uh, I'm going to be honest. I just rambled off so much that I kind of forgot what we were covering. Ah, fiddlesticks. Well, I guess we should continue on from, you know, a hyped, a little hype train for GXK. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because we did we did uh, Destroy All Monsters, which originally had a uh, planned King Kong appearance, and it's a Godzilla movie. And then we did uh, King Kong Escapes, a legitimate King Kong movie. So we need to keep that hype train up. Yeah. Oh, wait, but we didn't watch any Tokusatsu. So we can't do All Monsters Attack. Oh, crap. Well, um, at least I did watch an American film recently. An American film? Yeah. It was called King Kong. Well, I guess... So I think it's relevant. It, yeah, yeah. Um, but Rex, I've already covered King Kong. I wasn't talking about King Kong. I was talking about King Kong. But, Rex, I, I, I know you weren't there, but Nathan Marchand and I did cover King Kong. No, no, not King Kong. I meant King Kong. The Peter Jackson movie, but Rex, we still no. haven't we still haven't covered King Kong or King Kong Lives. You daft fool! Yeah, you mentioned it. You just mentioned the one I watched, King Kong. Rex, we have no. already talked about. Well, I <laughs> have already talked about no, King no, Kong. No, no, not King Kong. You daft idiot! I'm talking about King Kong, directed by John Gilliman. And produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Oh, you want to know something funny? What? Just sitting like five feet behind me is the Shout Factory Scream Factory Collector's Edition King Kong two disc Blu-ray set. No way. You know what? Sitting like five feet behind me. What? A $1 DVD for the movie that I bought five years ago. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. It is sitting there. (laughs) That was awful. (laughs) So why don't we cover King Kong 1976? Oh, sure. Why not? Okay. Um, God, where? Okay. In all seriousness. Yes, we are covering the 1976 film King Kong, released in December of 1976 on December 17th. Not to be confused with King Kong or King Kong. This is very true. Um, so, okay, should we start kind of from 1967? Uh, I guess so, yeah. Now... I mean- Let's so after like in the early seven, like late sixties, early early seventies, there were plans from Hammer to do a King Kong movie. Um, maybe we'll eventually do like a minisode or something talking about like the scrapped productions. So we're not going to really do that here because it has real no relation to King Kong seventy six. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since RKO got the rights back from Toho, they were wanting to produce... They uh, RKO wasn't, 
but there was interest in producing King Kong movies. Right. Now, I mean, he was a massive name, undeniably. There was this stipulation with the people at RKO at the time, the people that owned RKO. They did not want any remakes or sequels made to the film. So anybody that would approach them, they'd be told, buzz off, right? Because there were no... They didn't want a remake. The the idea of remaking King Kong was like how we view remaking Jaws. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Which... Now that I think about that, that is that that's a perfect comparison. Because anybody who's anybody in their right mind would know Josh should never be remade. And I imagine this is exactly how the people behind King Kong felt. I mean, yeah, it was. It's kind of documented. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So... What ended up happening was, um, Dino De Laurentiis, um, was okay. So there's like five different stories to how yeah. this movie came about. Um, I'm honestly shocked there's not one where Dino De Laurentiis was on a plane back from the <laughs> United States and he looked in the clouds and saw a gorilla shaped cloud. Like, that's the only thing missing from the the origins of this movie. So, on Dino De Laurentiis' side, he says he came up with the idea of remaking King Kong because in his daughter's room, above her bed, was a King Kong poster. Mm -hmm. Um, Various producers at Paramount claimed to be the ones that suggested the remake. Um... There's also a rumor that Dino De Laurentiis and Paramount chairman Barry Diller wanted to do a giant monster movie that kind of was in response to the disaster movies of the 1970s. Um, Some reports say that they wanted to do a space monster. Some reports say it was just a giant monster. Um. So there's there's a lot of different stories behind how this film actually came to be. Yeah. And so it's it it is hard to determine where that started. But one thing for certain is um in 1972 Jim Danforth tried to get a King Kong prequel off the ground. Um, he approached Universal about doing a prequel that would have stop motion, uh, a stop motion King Kong and stop motion dinosaurs, and they declined. And then he went to Sony because of Sony's rich history with Ray Harryhausen. He thought surely they'd do something, and they like apparently immediately were like, "Nope, we're not interested." <laughs> um. So he stopped for a bit, and then in 1974, he tried to do he he tried to pitch it again, and it would be a story about how Carl Denham learned about Skull Island and King Kong, and that fell through. Mm-hmm. But then um, he learned about the interest that Dino De Laurentiis had in remaking King Kong. Um, Dino De Laurentiis was actually friends with the people who were running RKO. 
mm-hmm. and he approached them and was trying to make a deal. I believe the initial deal that they had pitched was a $200,000 upfront agreement for the rights to produce and make a King Kong remake plus like 1% of the 1%. It was it was really? like 1% initially. And then what happened is so Danforth learned about this De Laurentiis version because he was actually approached to do stop motion dinosaurs uh, for the film. Um, but after he learned that they were doing a man in suit and a, uh, an animatronic and he read the script, he was like, no, this, I don't want to do this. Um, so he went back to universal and universal claimed that they had ownership of King Kong through a verbal agreement with the owners of RKO. So they start, they announced the production of the legend of King Kong. Now, okay, before we keep going, this is the beginning of the very difficult to understand copyright issues with the character and the film and the story of King Kong. Yep. (laughs) So allow me to try and explain it for now up to this point. Okay. So the original 1933 film was owned by RKO Pictures. They also owned the sequel, Son of Kong. The movie, however, came out after a novelized version of the screenplay came out. So by technicality, the movie is an adapted screenplay from this novel. The novel was copyrighted as King Kong and all of that. And the movie was not in terms of ownership. So by technicality, the Marion C. Cooper estate would have ownership of King Kong and the story of King Kong. RKO just made the film, right? Mm -hmm. So in the year 1960, they were supposed to renew the copyrights. However, RKO did not. And the Marion C. Cooper estate did not, or I think Marion C. Cooper himself did not. So mm-hmm. Jim Danforth claimed that King Kong, the novelized version, was in public domain. But that was kind of disregarded at the time because Universal claimed to have ownership, RKO claimed to have ownership, and Paramount and you know De, De Laurentiis claimed to have approval to produce a film Mm -hmm. which created a very conflicted issue um so the dino de laurentis film was already in early pre-production um i want to say the first script was dated for like it was the script was dated for like december of 1975 um Mm. Actually, they started working. I think they actually started working on it. Like the first draft was a little earlier than that. So in like mid to mid to late 1975. I mean, the legend of King Kong was also fairly well into pre-production as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was supposed to start filming in January of 76. Yes. Um, so thus began a race 
for who could make a King Kong movie. In the meantime, Universal then tried to claim ownership and sued both RKO and Dino De Laurentiis for using King Kong. Um, come to find out the Supreme Court like took one look at this uh, case and was like, no, there's nothing like you are claiming ownership to this character by a verbal agreement. There is no contract. There is no signature. There is no report of this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so RKO then made, so RKO of course made a deal with Paramount and Dino De Laurentiis, and then they countersued Universal for infringement of the character, um, because Universal was still trying to produce Legend of King Kong, and then Dino De Laurentiis also countersued Universal. <laughs> um, so Universal just got like double teamed, and, and it was a disaster. And then afterwards, Universal like tried to get involved with the Dino De Laurentiis film, but they the agreement they tried to make was they would have the merchandise rights, the sequel production rights, and they would get to pick what script was used. And Dino De Laurentiis said, "No, get out." <laughs> um. So. Then by er, like early 1976, like first week of January, Dino De Laurentiis publishes this uh, marketing stunt saying King Kong coming in coming Christmas of 1976 and they start production on their film. Now, they still it the the all of the lawsuits and whatnot ended with Universal agreeing to do. Universal agreeing to delay the Legend of King Kong until uh, the release of King Kong 76. So they would be starting in January of 1977. They had a director decided. They had a cast decided. They had um, Faye Ray was even agreed to do a cameo. Um, They had they had the they acquired the rights to the 33 musical score to use as the music for this film. Um, And they had uh, Jim Danforth on help to help do the special effects. It was going to be stop motion. Um, They had everything figured out Mm -hmm. and they put a hold on production. But as time went on, they took down the set they had built already they had stopped promoting it and they just quietly just put it under the rug and let it die. And then following that, um, of course, during all of this King Kong is in production filming took place in uh, started in January of 76 and lasted until September of 1976. Um, so it had a nine month filming production schedule, which is like three months longer than the actual um yeah typical which part of it was so they filmed the opening that was the first thing they filmed was the opening shots and then like they did that just so they could say hey our film's in production you have to wait on yours de Laurentiis is was like brutal he was such a like <laughs> competitive man like even in production they were like competing with each other to see who would make the best thing 
um, especially in the special effects department. Rick Baker has talked extensively about how he had to like compete for the design of Kong, compete for the head sculpt, compete for uh, the King Kong suit. Right. I mean, I mean, uh, Baker got a lot of it got rushed um, because of you know the deadlines that De Laurentiis and yeah had for Baker and the crew. Mm-hmm. Um. So after they shot the first scene, they like put the production on like a three week hold until they could actually get everything decided. <laughs> Barbara Stressend. I don't know how to say her last name. She was originally uh, asked to be uh, Dawn. Um, Cher was originally in there. And then uh, Meryl Strep like, tried to be the character. And, like, Dino De Laurentiis, like, thought she was ugly. And <laughs> so, obviously, that ended in a disaster. Um, they originally pr- pitched the film to be $16 million dollars. Um, in a budget um, that later got bumped up to twenty four million. Um, See, a- I've I'm not entirely sh- sure if that number, if those numbers are accurate, because mm-hmm. like there were reports from the time that place like from seventy six that placed the original budget at roughly around like ten ish million. Okay. And then it rose to about 16 million. Gotcha. So I'm not entirely sure if uh, if the 24 million figure is accurate. Gotcha. Um but either way production ended and then up- there was 10 million on marketing as well. Gotcha. Um either way like the budget definitely went over. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> mostly because of the giant monkey animatronic they made. Um yep. That they barely used. They barely used because it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> but a lot, like for the most part, the way De Laurentiis got the money for that is he sold um, international distribution for the film, um, and like got NBC to pick up the televised rights and whatnot early on, so that he would have that money already, and then he would be able to use that for for production. Which is a very smart business move, I must say. Roman Polanski was originally slated to be the director. Um, when he wasn't able to do it, it went to who ended up directing it, Mr. Uh, John Gil- uh, Gullerman. Mm-hmm. And Whom reportedly wasn't the nicest man on set. Apparently he had a very bad temper. Yep. And it wasn't until he like yelled at De Laurentiis's son or something that he like calmed down. But like they ended up, they had to construct uh, two King Kong hands that were animatronics. They had to create like two King Kong feet, the forty-three foot tall animatronic. I mean, allegedly, there's there's a bit of contention on this, but allegedly, when it comes to the hands. It was actually an accident that they made two. Allegedly, they made two right hands by complete mistake due to things getting rushed. That would be <laughs> hilarious. I I, I I hope that's true. It's <laughs> it kind of now that I think about it, it might be accurate. Uh, I know one of the actors says it's true, but I think there's 
some historians on the film that disagree with that. Gotcha. I'm not entirely sure which one is more reliable, but that's what I've read. Gotcha. Um, it's also worthy to note that partially why it, uh, RKO may have been more willing to do a remake was because Marion C. Cooper died in 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, so with him out of the picture, they kind of had to, they, they finally had the ability to kind of go do whatever they wanted to do. Mm. Um, I mean, Marion C. Cooper's wishes, and or I guess Willis O'Brien's wishes, sorry, didn't stop John Beck. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, so it's actually, speaking of John Beck, it is important to note that Toho definitely got ripped off. Um, so in 1976, so after the King Kong uh, bidding war between De Laurentiis and Universal happened, the final agreement was that it would cost them $200,000 for the rights to produce a King Kong movie and sequel rights to it, plus 3% of the box office. Mm-hmm. That's how much it was for De Laurentiis to get it after Universal bid 200000 plus 2% of box office numbers. Um, Toho, in 1962 paid RKO $220,000 for the rights for five years. (laughs) But also it kind of sounds like that Toho got a better deal because they could have produced whatever they wanted in those five years. They just had to have RKO sign off on it. Right. It just so happens it ended up only being King Kong versus Godzilla and King Kong Escapes. You know... In in one universe, it probably would have been King Kong versus Godzilla, and then continuation King Kong versus Godzilla, and then another King Kong movie. Um, or maybe another universe where it's King Kong versus Godzilla, King Kong escapes, and then if Destroy All Monsters got made earlier, maybe Destroy All Monsters. <laughs> right. So, I mean, in a way, it's it, I, it still sounds like Toho got the ripoff because Toho had to pay... 20,000 well here's the thing toho paid twenty thousand dollars more when in 1962 in in 1962 so once you adjust that for inflation toho paid way more Mm -hmm. um because we're talking in a 14 year difference right so it's it's interesting to see how much Toho kind of got screwed over on their King Kong deal. Um, going back to the whole copyright thing, Toho licensed King Kong from RKO. They had a five-year deal, and then Toho made a deal with Universal Pictures for international distribution. So by 1970, the where it sat was RKO held the rights for King Kong 33 and Son of Kong, Universal held the rights to the international distribution of King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes, and secretly, Marion C. Cooper and his estate owned King Kong, period. Yeah. However, nobody knew that. 
So that's why Toho went through RKO to license King Kong. So in that regards, Toho kind of got ripped off because they didn't even actually get the proper rights to King Kong. (laughs) They acquired it from the people who thought they owned it. And then if you go even deeper, technically speaking, Dino De Laurentiis didn't even get the proper licensing because it was actually the Marion C. Cooper estate by that point that held the rights. <sighs> so, if you want to be if you want to be ped- pedantic, three official King Kong movies are not official King Kong movies. <laughs> actually, four because if you count King Kong Lives, um, it would be four. Um, leaving just three official King Kong movies. What a mess. <laughs> it's a disaster. Um, it actually is. But we will we'll pick up what happened after all of this and after the ruling for the Cooper estates um, after we talk about the film here. Um, mm-hmm. So the first draft of the story still held the Empire State Building as the final location, and it did have helico- uh, dinosaurs. Um, the, one, the one change to the original story was uh, that helicopters would be the ones shooting at Kong, not fighter planes. And then, of course, they updated the uh, time period to be in 1976 just because it was cheaper. Um, and Dino De Laurentiis wanted a brighter more entertaining film and not something that was dark and, and kind of brooding. Mm-hmm. Um, the dinosaurs ended up getting cut due to scheduling issues because they had essentially 12 months to finalize the script, film everything, yeah. edit and the I film. I that the initial plans were also for the dinosaurs to be stop motion. Yes. And because that wouldn't work with the men in suit in animatronic they were going for, it just turned out to be a disaster, so they got cut. Um, Another thing was Faye Ray wasn't offered a cameo, but she said no to the De Laurentiis version. And then another thing was uh, the villain of the film, Wilson, originally survived. Um, Mm. I mean, his death only happens because of, like, test audience reactions. Because it was filmed with him surviving. Um, same with the actual true ending. At the actual ending, uh, Jack leaves um, Don during the whole crowd sequence. Um, but they didn't like how depressing that was. So they just mm-hmm. cut it to leave it ambiguous on whether or not, on what happened following that. Mm. But in January, they eventually did start with on-location filming. Um, their, the filming locations included Hawaii, uh, New York towards the end of production, and Los Angeles. Yeah. And they spent quite a lot of money on that, uh, on that big animatronic. They did. Um, Upwards of one million. Some, some sources even say it was up to two million dollars on that alone. Right. Um, and as, as it's known now, uh, Rick Baker, which this was his second film he worked on, um, was brought on to do help with the visual effects. What's funny is like, he 
like they were like they scoffed at all of his ideas and then they ended up going with all of his ideas like he won yeah. everything um his suit ends up being how kong is portrayed throughout the majority of the film <laughs> um the idea they brought on a second person to like co-act in the suit um that ended up going through the design of kong's face ended up being his um and like he he ended up like just owning the special effects department <laughs> and but originally he wasn't going to get any credits the only reason he ended up getting credit was because um time magazine ran a story on the production and they talked about rick baker and his work in the suit and whatnot so uh after that rick baker approached de laurentis and said hey I want to get credit for this. So at the end of the film, there's a little uh, blurb before the actual credits that say the producers of the film would like to. Um, Interesting. I was wondering, I was wondering why the special effects crew got um, uh, credited before the cast. Like, I'm like, Oh, that's really unusual. They did that because <laughs> it basically, they had to, they, the, the reason they <laughs> were of course. What do I expect from Hollywood? <laughs> Originally, the reason they weren't going to do it was because they were promoting. So with Jaws, the thing everybody talked about was the animatronic shark. Right. They were trying to say that King Kong would be all a 45 foot animatronic Kong. Well, that turned out to be a disaster. The animatronic was a, a, a disaster to watch. So they scrapped that idea and went with the men in suit. And because Rick Baker and, and that comp and that team ended up doing so much of the work and so much stuff, they approached De Laurentiis and said, Hey, we better get acknowledgement and, and I think a pay increase or there's going to be problems. So then he went and, and did that. Um, an interesting connection to the the Toho King Kong movies. Rick Baker originally wanted to create arm extensions to make Kong look more gorilla-like. Mm. But due to time constraints, that got scrapped. Yeah. So there's an alternate reality where we have the freakishly weird, long-armed 76 Alter King Kong. Too. Alternate reality where the 76 King Kong has the changing arm size lengths. <laughs> and I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> I mean, another thing I find kind of funny is that this technically is technically Baker's second uh, time playing King Kong. <laughs> What do you mean by that? Uh, he he played King Kong for like insert shots of Kong's hand in a 1972 Volkswagen commercial. Oh, because like in that commercial, it's like 90 percent like stock uh, or stop stop motion mm -hmm. animation, but there's a couple insert shots where Rick Baker's hand is used as uh, King Kong. So I guess. I, I guess that would be true. Yeah. <laughs> um, And I'll bring this up at the end as well, but also funny enough, Rick Baker made a cameo in Peter Jackson's King Kong in 2005. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> so at this point, Rick Baker's like the dude who owns King Kong at this point. Changed my <laughs> mind. 
Um, for the big animatronic, it took 48 puppeteers to make it work. Um, there was also a large dead Kong constructed for the ending of the film. Um, right. However, when they shot it, um, the crowd of 30,000 New Yorkers that came to be a part of the film, when they like gave them the clear to go over there, they like went over and like started yanking anything they could off of the giant dead monkey um, <laughs> as, as a souvenir. And they ended up having to <laughs> shut down production because they were worried that the amount of people would cave in the underground like mall. I mean, that they, they weren't had. even expecting thirty thousand people. I think they were. I think the the call they did was only for about like five thousand people, mm-hmm. if I remember right. Um, what's funny too is in the and I'm jumping ahead here to talking about the actual movie, but you can see extras like waving at the camera. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> I I saw it immediately. I was like, "Oh, that dude's waving at the camera. Huh. These must be extras." <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to look for that on a rewatch. It's like in Space Monster Wing Magui when they have people running away, some of them are like laughing and smiling, and it's like, "Hmm, you're clearly an extra." Um <laughs> So I couldn't find the there was some different numbers here, but it seems like there were seven or eight sound stages they used um, for all of the actual soundstage uh, sequences. Yeah, um, all on the MGM lot. And I, I think that's really all. I'm just going to be honest here. I'm going to be completely honest here. Um. If you want to know all the nitty gritty details, because this film has been there's like too much for us to cover. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's no way. Like they literally like have the nitty gritty details. Um, yeah. If you want a good source for nitty gritty details, go buy the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Um, there are there's forty there's fifty minutes worth of video essays from uh people who worked on the production there's on the second disc there's like a 30 minute like q a discussion from a showing um and then there's a audio commentary from a king kong historian and there is a commentary that's a discussion with rick baker on the production of the film and then if you need more than that, then just get John LeMay's Kong Unmade book, and then you get all the details on The Legend of King Kong, the scrapped King Kong 76 script, and the three-hour TV version that also exists that is on the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, interest, I discovered there's actually free cuts of a movie that I found interesting. Really? Yeah, because I did not know this until after I had finished watching the movie that I had actually watched a, a shorter cut of the film. (laughs) So yours wasn't the two hour and 14 minute version. No, mine was the two hour and eight minute version. Huh? More, you know, (laughs) I wonder if they cut out violence. No, no. The snake's death is pretty brutal. Kong's death is fairly brutal. Um, the only change that I'm aware of is like 
there, I think there's a scene in the regular, in the two hour, 14 minute version of the film where it's just like a montage of Duan, the female lead of the film, just like, like a montage of her on the ship that's cut. Gotcha. And then I'd presume a couple other scenes have been either cut or shortened. I'm not entirely sure on all the differences, but yeah. Because <laughs> huh. I was reading something and they mentioned the scene and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then they showed a clip and I'm like, this just straight up wasn't in the movie I watched. <laughs> huh. Well, Rex, if if you are ready... Um, we can go ahead already like way farther into the, into the episode than normal. We can, we can dive into this two hour and 14 minute movie. I, I believe I'm ready. Okay. For the legend of King Kong, you could say. (laughs) That was great. So funny. I forgot to laugh. I'll be here all week. Oh, God. Well, the film starts off with some establishing shots and some uh, sequences of people getting ready to embark on this ship um, that they're on. Yes, including a Jeff Jeff Bridges who is sneaking on board. Sneaking in air quotes. He is not very stealthy. No, he's just acting like a drunkard. And he, like, gives one of the, like, guards, like, $3,000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we get some shot, shots of, you know, him sneaking around, getting on the ship, and it embarking, um, seeing, like, they go through some rough uh, waters and whatnot. Um, yeah, there's a mayday call during a storm. Um, but they never really do much about it. They just kind of ignore it. Um, mm. which I think is like illegal or something like in, in every movie ever. Uh, uh, hey, negligence is okay. If no one knows about it, dude, li- literally this, the, the whole team is their middle name is negligence, <laughs> which is a perfect segue into something that's oddly familiar to us now. Um, in, in recent monster movie history. Um, well, we, we are introduced to Fred Wilson, our Carl Denham replacement, um, talking yeah. to the captain uh, at dinner and whatnot. Uh, or no, they're not at dinner, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're eating. Yeah. Um, and then we go, we cut to... Um, the debrief sequence, which is a monster movie cliche um, of Fred standing in front of a uh, white screen where they're having uh, something projected onto it. And he's talking about a fog bank that never disappears. And through satellite imagery, they discovered an island in the fog bank. Mm-hmm. I swear to God, I've seen and heard this story before. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about how Skull, Kong Skull Island like completely takes from this film. 
<laughs> um, later on. Um, and then Jeff Bridges during this whole like debrief. Is this a second monster? So two monsterverse films seemingly taking a bit from uh, other King Kong movies. Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, I was getting a massive Skull Island vibe from this scene. <laughs> no, it it legitimately feels like it's taken straight from it. Um, I mean, I mean, since both are set in the seventies, you know, some of the outfits that people are that the cast are wearing look the same as well, right? <laughs> um, and don't Kong Skull Island takes place in seventy three? I think so. Okay. Because they don't that. reference Vietnam or anything in 76. No, no. I mean, this this film's more about uh, the oil crisis that was going on at the time. But they also don't really touch on it. Like, the, the, the Fred Wilson is, is an executive for an oil company... And, you know, he's going to this island to get oil. Um, but, like, they don't really talk, like, the the events going on in, in the world at the time aren't really touched upon. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, this film sticks more to, like, the traditional, just, like, themes of Kong with, like, you know, uh, men screwing with nature and capitalism and that type deal being like more what the film's about the oil crisis kind of just a bit of like additional context (laughs) right and so as as fred wilson here is giving his debrief jeff bridges just kind of stumbles in and is like or it's an animal and i've seen reports of an island in animals and then Fred Wilson's like, "You're act- who are you?" And then he is like, "You're actually from another oil company, and you're here to steal everything, and you're getting locked in the brig." <laughs> and yeah, but before they can lock him away, he discovers uh, on the side of the ship he notices a a uh, lifeboat sailing towards them, which. After they go over and and get the little lifeboat, they uh, find a single unconscious woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Anne Darrow of this film. Now, real quick, uh, I I need to rewind here real quick. Um, whenever they take Jack away, uh, Wilson like calls him a crook. But, like, in the same sequence, he admits that he bribed people in Washington to get this stuff to go for his company (laughs) and make millions. And I'm like, wow, the irony. (laughs) I mean, this dude's just an a-hole. Like, he has no redeeming factors, period. Not really a single one (laughs) throughout the entire film. Um, So, jumping back in here, so... They get the woman, they take her into one of the cabins. Um, Miraculously, her hair dries and looks like it's been, like, styled and groomed and everything, Um, which I think is hilarious. 
Um, this is our introduction to Jessica Lang, which this was her first film she was in. She was a model prior to this. And then we get some creepy, you know, remarks about women and whatnot. This film is f- filled with 1970s sleaze. Right. I mean, even like the backstory behind like how she ended up on the oh, lifeboat, yeah. it. it's implied that like she was likely going to be involved so she's a wannabe actress and she was with a guy named harry on a yacht and harry is very likely a reference to the real life actor harry reams who starred in the film deep throat yep which a film which is referenced by name in this film um which was a very infamous 70s porn movie and she the was going to being that Dawn was very naively being dragged into a porn shoot in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which, so I guess we haven't, we should probably stop here um, real quick and, and establish. So I haven't seen this movie in like 10 years. Um, I have never seen this movie before. So both of us are kind of fresh to this. Like I, I owned it on DVD and like I caught the ending on TV a long time ago. And then I got the DVD and I watched it once and I didn't remember much after that. I've um, owned the DVD for about five years and never put it in once. Until so now. <laughs> this was, this was my, what felt like my first watching. I was genuinely surprised by the adults, like innuendos and sexual humor. Yeah. <laughs> It's almost as uncomfortable as just the sexism and racism in the 1933 movie. Right. Yeah. Um, This movie just kind of has, like, the first half of it has a really, like, weird kind of rapey undertone to certain scenes. Even, like, some of the Kong scenes are kind of infamous for that as well. Right, and even even later on, Wilson's like, the monkey tried to rape you, and she was like, no, Kong yeah. didn't do that. And then he was like, the monkey tried to rape you. Um, yeah, and I mean, some of the characters are pretty sleazy. Like, it, like Wilson, I mean, he's a married man, but like, there's a there's a line uh, later on where he says like, he'd be willing to cheat on his wife for Dawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, this movie definitely made me feel pretty uncomfortable and, and just like, like, honestly, this was, this reminded me a lot of the stuff that, uh, this is kind of, this is like a stretch. Um, but I, on a, on a school trip, one one of the evenings on a school trip. <laughs> what? I went Where is to this the, going? <laughs> I went to the theater that was like down the street from the uh, the hotel we were staying in, and I watched X, <laughs> which my teachers knew all about it. They were like, I mean, if you want to go see it, like, just be back. So I went and I watched X and like that movie is, is very much a 
based on like 1970s sleeves and like this movie just reeked of it like that same feeling um the only difference is x is also just a horror movie straight up that does that um while for like king kong it's a little different because like the 33 movie while it does have certain moments like that it doesn't really do that and then son of kong absolutely does not the toho films do not even like 2005's peter jackson movie which i i haven't seen in a long time but i don't recall really any sleaze there and right. i mean there's a ape doesn't have any um the mighty peking man is a little suggestive from what i can remember um skull island has no sleaze neither does gvk and i guarantee you gxk won't so it was just really weird to see a king kong movie like this mm. yeah <laughs> yeah just some of there was like there weren't too many moments of it but the moments that there were i'm like okay we're, we're going here all righty see Thanks. so this is gonna sound really really stupid um so like okay kids who grew up on monster movies like you you watch your godzilla your gamma your king kong right like yeah um this is like if the kid were to watch this with like his mother or something it would be really awkward like out of all the King Kong movies, this is easily the most. Well, I don't know. King Kong Lives has an actual nip slip. I mean, so does this pretty much. I'm pretty sure. I it, but it's this one's not nearly as uh, noticeable. Mm. I haven't this, seen King Kong Lives, so I can't comment. Um, it's it it's like straight up. Doesn't in the, the female corner. Kong have nips as well? Yeah, but Linda Hamilton. <laughs> Linda Hamilton just uh, jumps out of bed and it just kind of shows up there. I have a story to tell about that, but I will leave that for whenever we inevitable talk about King Kong lives. And I talk about what seven-year-old Elijah thought whenever he watched King Kong lives alone. Oh no. Oh no. I don't know Um, if I want to hear this. I'm going to be honest. um, So, I mean, yeah, there's just this creepy undertone. Um, but they, they kind of stop it. Um, and what happens is Wilson goes to Prescott, uh, Jack Prescott, Jeff Bridges, um, after doing a background amazing hair, by the way, he has amazing hair and amazing beard. And he's apparently a, uh, a doctor turned, uh, scientist for ecology. Yeah. Like paleontologist, I think paleontologist who also like did photography um now this is full trades i see what you did there that's funny you bridged the gap that wasn't even intentional (laughs) well you 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 bridged the gap good job i i see what you did there yeah oh um so let's very 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 um let's pause real quick so an interesting thing to note is the photographer thing was in the original script was supposed to be a blonde woman 
who ha- who was a photographer that came on the exped- expedition expedition you know that's speak. that sounds like another film like and I she know. would end up being the love interest for kong that sounds like a a familiar film set in the 70s that would come a couple decades later yeah. with a big monkey yeah what a so funny coincidence again, again like that makes two things that Skull Island has literally just taken. And, I mean, we've already talked about it, but there's no dinosaurs in this movie. So there's the third thing. Right. So, literally, like, there's... Although three... I think in Kong Skull Island's case, that made... I've heard that's not really their choice for the monster. Yeah, that was... Stuff. That's that's with the uh, copyright issues that happened after this movie. Yeah. Uh, which we'll talk about. Um, we love legal mess. I mean, I've been trying to explain the King Kong copyright laws for uh, years, years, literally <laughs> years, and nobody ever understands me. But it, it makes perfect sense to me. You just gotta have to take it one step at a time and understand it. So Prescott ends up going up and checking on this uh, this uh, pr- uh, woman. Where they find out about Dawan, Dawan, right? Her name Dewan. in the script was Dawn, but then I think they changed it during filming to make it to make her name more interesting. And I hate it. Yeah, I'm probably just gonna revert to Dawn. Let's just call her Dawn. That's her I name. I don't feel now. like saying Dawn. Dawn is stupid. It is. <laughs> um. And she's like methed out, like she's like giggly and just talking like she's she's absolutely hysterical. She's hysterical. And then Wilson. So after they like get her to lay down and she's like, maybe my luck's changed. (laughs) Wilson tells Prescott that he's going to be the photographer and that's how he's going to earn his uh, food and board. Um, Mm -hmm. And so from there. Um, they end up getting to the fog bank. They get in the boats and they sail off. Dawn um, like begs to come, and they end up giving it her. She gives a good reason, so Wilson lets her come. Yeah. Once they go through the fog, they uh, turn out to find the island. Mm. Um, and once we get to the island, we uh, enter into the on-location filming, which. Uh, was in Hawaii. Um, interesting fact here: King Kong seventy six was filmed in Hawaii. Godzilla nineteen ninety eight was filmed in Hawaii. Godzilla twenty fourteen was filmed in Hawaii. Kong Skull Island was filmed in Hawaii. Godzilla versus Kong was filmed in Hawaii. I don't remember if GXK was. I it, don't was. Think it was. It was. It was. It was. So, I can confirm on the crew shirt it, that I'm going to buy. Probably it was. <laughs> so now Godzilla Kong: The New Empire filmed in Hawaii. Yeah. Um. So King Kong '76 kind of started a funny trend of uh, monster movies filming in Hawaii. Yeah. If you also want to throw this on there, um, I want to say all the Jurassic movies have filmed in Hawaii outside of Dominion. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah. Um so that's always fun to see. Um mm. I mean on the 
this arrival at the island. I love how mis- how thanks to the fog, the island looks really mysterious. Uh, yes, and ominous. Like I love this uh, approach to the island. I think it's great. And like it, and this just kind of goes to the cinematography. I think the way that the island is shot looks beautiful. Right. Um, I mean, this movie has a very grand scale to it in its cinematography a lot of the time and helped of course by some of the some absolutely brilliant production design like after they get on the island they go exploring for a bit and they like come across this massive wall built like by the natives of the island Mm -hmm. and while in this like introductory shot to it i believe it's like a matte painting yes um yeah it would be a matte painting um, but later on, you know, it, there, there is an actual set for it. They built a real massive wall that was about 15 meters, 50 feet high, about 300 feet wide, I believe. And yeah. No, it, and like that set specifically, once we get to there, I have a lot of positive opinions because it, all of that looks really good. Um, it looks fantastic. Now, I will say it's very obvious to tell the change between on location to soundstage, but I yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. I kind of like that. So, like, one of my I one mean, of it's my no favorite... difference from when it happens in, like, Ibra Horror of the Deep and various Toho films. Right. And for me, I don't know. So, I, I have this weird appreciation for, like, they go out, they film the wide-angle shots and, like, the the big like wide shots and all that on on location and mm-hmm. then when you get to like the personal like medium or close-ups or something it switches to a soundstage but you mm-hmm. can feel like it's a soundstage because it does feel more personal and there's just something about that that i love there's something about that era of filmmaking where you could tell when they were on set and when they were on location that was just it's it's a nice novelty I mean, there's also just a beauty to the set designs as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on a lot of those sound stages. So it's like, even when it's noticeable, it's never really like, I never see it as a bad thing necessarily. You yes. Know? It's kind of its own beauty to it. There's an art to it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, like, and- I, I like, I kind of like a lot of how this film um, integrates uh, the matte paintings and all that as well. There's not there's a fun little style in like scenes like the log scene later on. The the compositing in this film is beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah, there's some great composite shots. A couple janky ones, like when Kong falls at the end of the film. That's the, a bit the, janky. the ending is riddled with com- composition errors. Yeah. Um but, but I mean there's some shots of like Kong walking in a crowd of people near the end that actually that genuinely looks fantastic for 76 mm-hmm. no the 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 composition's really good and a lot of it too and rick baker also made it a point to point this out the lighting mm. looks fantastic in this film yeah the lighting is on point um which we'll talk about stuff like that um as we get to it but i do jumping back into where we are in the plot um I love how like Jack is like, look, there's like fresh mud 
and whatnot, like clear repairs of, of a giant godlike creature, like they're trying to keep out. And Wilson's and Will- just like, nah. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, and ridiculous. He's, and he's like, these are ruins from an ancient civilization. And then suddenly the drums start. It's like great. And then and then Jack's like, must be a mechanical band. um but also once they so at this point um up until this point the film has not felt like a king kong remake it has felt like its own thing but as soon as they as this moment happens everything just automatically becomes a king kong 33 remake yeah which is both nice but also it's like man like it's not like it naturally like got to that point. It just straight up like boom. Okay, now it's just a King Kong thirty three remake in modern times. So I I don't really know how to feel about that. Like they try to do their own thing, and then they ultimately just like a quarter into the film, they end up just doing what they set out to not do. Mm. Yeah, I think. One thing that um, this film differentiates from you know, the original that we've already mentioned is the lack of dinosaurs mm-hmm. in this on this Skull Island. If if there's one thing I can really complain about this Skull Island is that the lack of dinosaurs and just general lack of creatures makes it feel kind of almost lifeless. Yes, it. What I love about thirty three. Um, even in 62 and 67 and from what I can and 05 and Skull Island is the places where the Kong creature is at is its own entire ecosystem. Right. Because, I mean, I wouldn't say that the her films do that as well as say 33 or especially mm-hmm. like 05, which 05, if I'm not mistaken, like they kind of like planned out and had like there's like a bunch of law around that whole ecosystem and i mean there's a bit of law for like this kong skull island ecosystem as well um but even going back to 33 it very much there's a world of wonder it's kind of like that uh it's kind of like it basically is the lost world but what makes skull island more magical is that there's also kong the eighth wonder of the world uh, right and he's, he's kind of like cherry on top right and he's like the god of the island right like yeah yeah and and then the whole novelty of the skull on the island which the idea of skull island like that's just a fantasy element that has existed probably for a couple hundred years just the idea of like sailing to skull island um mm-hmm. Like, I know there's a lot of, like, pirate stories that, like... And now, I'm when I say that, I'm referring to, like, modern-day fantasy stories of, like, traveling to the Skull Island where there's buried treasure, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But there is just a sense of fantasy to, like, think of there is a legitimate island that has a skull as a mountain. Um, and the natural fear... And like dread that comes with that skull. And then you have these this group of people who come to this island 
to seek out adventure. It's an adventure story um, and an adventure fantasy. And you learn that the skull is not the worst thing on the island. And you're shown like the Elasmosaurus and uh, the spider pit sequence, the Stegosaurus, um, the Allosaurus, like all of that. Yes, absolutely. That's like horrifying and can kill you. But at the top of the food chain, it's King Kong. Mm. And something that I, and I was thinking about this, something that I think the King Kong 33 and 33 remakes do that I think 54, Godzilla 54 does as well, is it they do give the monster the godlike feeling. And the only yeah. time that the godlike feeling is taken away is when civilization comes to combat the monster. Mm. Then and only then does the godlike aura of the creature lose its aura. Because you're seeing this primitive world where Kong is essentially a god or for Godzilla, like on Odo Island, right? Like, yeah, this sense of, you know, they would have a girl walk out and be Godzilla's sacrifice so that they right. could have and this film kind of plays a bit with that. Um, what you're talking about with um, man, you know, Kong status as a god um, at the beginning of the film on the island. And then after he's captured, the film kind of and eventually is killed. This film kind of does play with that at a couple mm -hmm. points. And I, I do like that. I love that little aspect. And I think something that really does hammer that home is the amazing native stuff just in general. Um, mm -hmm. Following the scene we're just talking about, we, they walk up on, on the ceremony right yeah um where they're getting ready to sacrifice this woman to kong um yeah. but the natives spot them they spot them and then they stop just like in the original now i think the original does a better job um the leader in the original i think was way better um they actually gave him a face and he's iconic and he got credited and he was pretty highly billed which i mean we we talk about it. That's that was like a monumental moment in film history for something like that. Um, but in this movie, like I will say, while the natives like I love the design of them, I love the choreography, I love their I like music, the mask, the mask <laughs> um, which apparently that actor in all of the behind the scenes uh, images like just never took it off. <laughs> um, I can't blame him. The set designs, like <laughs> everything's everything's beautiful, and the cinematography and the scale is great for them. Yeah, but they also just feel like they're there, like they don't really bring a lot to it. Um, they 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 do not characterize them nearly as much, which is weird because you would think that this film would characterize them way more than the thirty three film did, but in all reality. The 33 film did a way better job at giving the natives actual character. I mean, from 
from what I can remember, at least it's not the racist kind of racist portrayal in uh, the O five remake. <laughs> I don't remember the O five. I one. don't. I don't remember it well enough, but um, a lot of people point to that portrayal being very racist. Gotcha. <laughs> so for what it's worth, it could be worse. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't know. I just. I wish. I wish we could get more characterized versions. Yeah, characterized. I, mean, I, think, I think the portrayal in this is fine enough. I think it's adequate. I, yeah, but I agree there isn't too much to it, really. Um, but I don't. Admittedly, I don't quite remember too much of how the natives in the original were, outside of like the vague memories of oh. Just like in the original, these natives are offering like about like six uh, of their women to get the the blonde. Yeah. And yeah, on that note, um, our characters refuse and uh, flee back to the ship. Now, while they were there, they did discover that there is some type of oil on the island. So now they can start prepping to you know test it look into it and all of that yeah following this scene we do get wilson like talking about returning to the island and planning to take over um actually like planning on like tricking them into signing the island over to them yeah Um, which is basically what most countries most countries did to the natives (laughs) yeah And it just adds, like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up now, because I think by this point, um, Wilson's supposed to replace Carl Denham, right? Yeah. This is the worst idea of a replacement ever. Something that I appreciated was Carl Denham was such a colorful character. A lot of people said that Carl Denham was actually based on, like, Marion C. Cooper. in general, because of how colorful and like <laughs> eccentric he was. Um, mm. And like Carl Denham is such an interesting character because, on one hand, yes, this is all his fault. But on the other hand, he doesn't mean anything bad. Mm-hmm. And that's something I love about the Carl Denham character. Um, I mean, Robert Armstrong portrays Carl Denham as this showman that is just looking for the next exciting thing. And he's, you know, he's not one to want the, you know, the chaos that ensued. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we see in Son of Kong, like he legitimately feels bad for what has happened. Yeah. Yeah. from what I can remember of the Peter Jackson version, Jack Black portrays Carl Denham as this guy who's just looking for, he's curious. And so he's out on this adventure and like all he wants is to go on this adventure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he ends up getting what he wants and then finds out the, the repercussions to his actions. But Fred Wilson is just like, there's nothing 
to create this character. Like everything right. I mean, about- he's just I mean, the thing with uh Wilson is he's just like there's not really much nuance to him. He's just he's just a greedy antagonist looking to exploit the island for its resources. And then when he later finds out that the resources can't be exploited, he's like, alrighty, maybe we can, let's shift gears onto this Kong. And then finds a way to exploit Kong, which I don't think that's necessarily a bad angle to go. Like, I think it, I think it works for this film. I think it's fine. Um, it 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 does its job. Yeah, it, it does it does its job, but I'll agree it's not as interesting as the more nuanced uh, denim. Now, get, getting back into the film, um, at night we get some interactions between Jack and Don. Um, that ends in an insinuated interaction between the two in one of their rooms. Mm -hmm. Um, Adding to the whole romance of the movie. Yeah. Um, But this begins the running theme of getting blocked every time. (laughs) Um, Because as Dawn's getting ready to go inside, uh, to her room the natives just casually come by and steal her and yeah. then jack finds a necklace um in the same fashion as 33 and they and then he lets everybody on the boat know meanwhile we get to see a beautiful ceremony mm. like this ceremony is amazing yeah something was highlighted about how dawn's like drugged so it adds oh, yeah, a layer. She is. Yeah. So it adds a layer of like uh what's what's the word I'm looking for? Tension? Uh-uh. It adds to the tone of the scene because mm-hmm. it is very almost dreamlike. Mm-hmm. What's going on between the music and the lighting and the choreography and the set? It's all very, very well done. Very Mm -hmm. beautiful. And with seeing her, like, move in the drugged out motions, there's just a very, it's a very appealing sequence. I would say that this is the one thing I think the film does better than the 33 one is just this ceremony. Oh, I think the ceremony and the whole build-up to King Kong's first appearance is actually quite well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Kong's first full appearance is I- iconic as the no. 33 one, but it definitely no. works. Yeah, I think it works. Um, there's some really good build-up both with the, um, with the diegetic and non-diegetic score of both like the the natives ritual and also the actual score from John Barry. No, I, and what's really interesting is when, once they tie up uh, Don and we have that build up, like the, the tree shaking and whatnot, the close-ups of Kong look like a legitimate gorilla. Yeah. Um, 
those close-ups of the face look really, really good. Um, yeah. And then we get oh, a the really... face they have for the faces faces I should say that they made for the King Kong suit look great. Mm-hmm. Very and expressive. Then once we get to the actual full reveal, it's a great composite shot with amazing, beautiful lighting. Mm. Um, the only thing that really detracts from this scene is after Kong's appearance, the really awful ADR of Jessica Lang screaming and saying, help. Mm. Um, I, 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 I cannot get past it. The ADR for her in this movie is awful. This I, I'm kind of surprised it <laughs> I didn't got notice nommed. it too often. Honestly, I didn't notice it too often. <laughs> I like most of her scenes with Kong that are like wide shots are all. I mean, they are obviously all ADR. I cannot stand it. I don't understand how like that got passed for this Oscar nominated best sound film. <laughs> um, I just ugh. It really drives me up the wall. I don't know. I feel like I got bothered more by uh, some of the dubbed lines for Linda Miller in um, King Kong Escapes. During, I'd like, the say sequence. they're on par. I'd say they're about on par. I, I don't know about that. I don't. Know. I mean, okay, maybe the dialogue. <laughs> maybe the dialogue, actually. <laughs> some of and- the dialogue. Uh, Maybe not in this scene, but later on is a bit. Oh no! R- right after this scene, um, so <laughs> so Kong takes Don away, and then the boys storm the camp and force all the natives to go into hiding for the rest of the film, and they just really and honestly never show up again. Uh, they show up. They show up like during the. They show up Kong's for caption. thirty seconds. Yep, and do nothing, and then disappear yep. again. Yep, they're gone. Um, which sucks because they had such a great like ceremony. Um, mm. so they end up splitting up. They have the oil team, and then they have the search party. Yeah, and just as they so they're like examining like right out right in into the like doorway. Um, Wilson trips and falls into a Kong footprint, and like as as Wilson agrees for them to go. Jack says something along the lines of, what, do you think it's just a guy in a monkey suit? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, what? The 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 self-aware joke there is so out of place. It was, random. it was, yeah. No, that stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm like, I get what you're doing, movie. Doesn't quite work. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Maybe if it was, maybe if King Kong was... A bit smaller, but uh, like if it was like if this was like a Bigfoot movie, it would work, but not for the fifteen meter tall monkey. Yeah, with the what was they specified like six foot three, six foot four inches. um yeah. foot uh, like length of the foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it it was <laughs> it doesn't quite it was, work for that. <laughs> it was a really poor placed joke. Mm-hmm. But they go off on their journey, and then, like, the following day, Wilson um, finds out that the oil that he has already reported to be, like, worth a ton of money... um, Is useless. 
it, it's useless. It's For the next it, ten thousand years. Yeah, before it'll be good. Um, and so this is when the whole like plan to capture King Kong and bring him back as a marketing stunt for the company he works for. That's when this plan finally sets into action. Yeah. Following this, we get a really okay. So I'm gonna say this now. I love the skies in this movie. The skies make it such. It feels such. It feels very dreamlike with how the skies are composited with Kong in the sets. And I love that. I love that. It adds a sense of fantasy to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Kong and Don have a little bit of an interaction. Um, yeah. She's trying to run away. Kong like keeps grabbing her and playing with her. Um, and then he's a curious she, little monkey. He's a curious or, little monkey. Well, little may not be the right word. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, and then like as she tries to run away for the final time, and I'm, this is where I'm going to establish this now. Dawn never on this island feels like she really cares about Kong. Even though they're supposed to be building a relationship, it yeah. does not. It like she's she wants to get away from Kong this whole time. Um, after she gets dirty, Kong like takes her to get showered. Yeah, and from there we cut to the infamous log sequence, which this is a very good adaptation of this scene. I would say. Mm-hmm. But there is something about that original version that I don't think like it again, iconic, like it's good, just like how Kong's emergence for the first time is good. Yeah, it's just not iconic. Right. Um, And again, this comes back to the whole like this film feels like it's retreading 33 to a T. Um, I also forgot to mention you t- talked about the dialogue. This dialogue in the sequence where Kong is playing with Don as she tries to run Ugh. away is awful. And I don't understand why they wrote Don to be such a dumb character. She's like talking about like horoscopes and like, oh, you must be an Aries or something like that. Ugh. And it's like, oh my God, it hurt to listen to her talk. (laughs) Why did they write the character to be so stupid? (laughs) Like, Fay Ray was not that stupid. Fay Ray just screamed a lot. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was done. Like, and she never gets smart. She's stupid for the entirety of the movie. It's like she's still like crazy from whenever she woke up. Mm. I I I really don't get it. I don't get it. Mm. Um but we do get going back to where we were. We get a great sequence at the log. Yeah. All of the rescue party is killed except for Jack and uh Bones, one of the other guys. And he is sent back to let them know about what's going on. And Jack continues on his journey. Um, they do cut the spider pit sequence from this version, from this movie. 
mm-hmm. um, which I would have been very like this movie definitely feels like it could have done the spider pit sequence and it could have been really cool. Right. But um, I mean, with how rushed of a production this was, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So following this, um, Kong brings Dawn to one of the most beautiful sets ever, which is his little like mountain. Right. With that also has two twin peak mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love like I love the atmosphere in this set. I love the lighting. Kong actually looks kind of creepy at points. Mm-hmm. Um Everything about this is I mean, just... Kong is kind of creepy in this first half <laughs> yeah. of the movie. I just, I, I love the the sets, like, once they get to, like, the darker side of Skull Island, look really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and very dreamlike. Like, this, the idea of Skull Island in this movie is very dreamlike. And I love that. I love the idea that this world is so fantastic that the filmmakers have made it so it looks so dreamy. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I love that. Yeah. This is where we get the callback to the 33 film once again, where Kong starts to undress Jessica Lange's Dawn. Um, He gets farther than the original Kong did with Fay Ray. Um, and like that legitimately happened. Like they were able to make the, the finger actually undress her. Um, mm. so, hmm, that's a little weird. Good on them. Good on them. <laughs> now, following this, we get a callback to King Kong escapes. Not really, but kind of. I mean, it's more a callback to the meaty to fight in the original. If you want to call it that. Yeah. It's um, kind of a lamer version. Mm-hmm. So a giant snake just suddenly crawls out of nowhere and attacks King Kong. Which I was pleasantly surprised by because I could not remember for the life of me if King Kong fought any creatures or not in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised to see, oh, there is another creature in this film. How nice. Eddie, Eddie murders this snake in quite the brutal jawbreaker, I must say. Yeah, so what happens is, while Kong and the snake are, are attacking, which apparently during production there was like an issue with the snake's puppeteering, so they like cut all the wires and just had Rick Baker like... <laughs> acting like this thing was actually fighting him. That doesn't Um, surprise me. I hear they had a lot of issues with, like, even, like, the hydraulic arms and stuff they were having issues with. Oh, the hydraulic arms almost dropped an extra and almost crushed Jessica Lang. Yeah, multiple times. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the foot almost... Fred Wilson almost got crushed. Yep. Like, the actor for him almost got crushed, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... It's, yeah, this film had a lot of dangerous moments. Um, Jack appears to watch this and get Dawn, and then as, like, Kong sees Dawn running away with Jack, he, like, is fed up and just destroys this snake's face. He does his jawbreaker, and then he just rips off, its like, the top of its head. And it's <laughs> really brutal. 
I'm like, God damn. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Which did you prefer, the sea serpent or the giant snake? Uh, I mean, both are kind of lame, but I mean, I. so on the one hand, the sea serpent is, what, is maybe one of the funniest scenes, <laughs> just for the bonk on the head. <laughs> but on the but on the other, the 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 jawbreaker was kind of cool. I like I like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I might. <sighs> That's a tough question, but I think I'm gonna have to go with the head bonk with the sea serpent, just by a tiny bit. Okay, but I, I don't think either fight is very good. <laughs> See, I would go with the sea serpent because I thought that fight was a little more lively um, and a little mm. more animated than this scene. Um, to, I mean, there's uh, like two different ver- There's like two or three different versions of this scene because, like, the t- the extended cut of this movie, the snake fight is just com- is edited completely differently. Mm-hmm. But in the version that we watched, like they resorted to close-up shots, not really showing a lot, right. um, and and it it's a it's a maybe forty-five second fight. Right. Um, the sea serpent I mean, scene similar to that, um, but like they they have wide shots, they have medium shots. Yeah. Um, I don't think they actually resort to any close-ups there. Not that I can recall. I don't recall it. Head. Um, um, but I did. I did. I did. I did enjoy the the brutal the brutal jawbreaker. I thought that was fun. This. Yeah. <laughs> so Kong like gets up and like runs after them. Um, they end up jumping into some water and then they float downstream and eventually get out of the water and run to the. Run to the gate, um, where where Wilson and Co have been uh, building a pitfall trap for Kong with uh, chloroform in the hole that they've dug right past the the door. Oh, that's um, what for... they were using to knock him out. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, they say it in the movie. I didn't hear that. Mm. Hey. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna chalk this up to maybe it was cut in my uh, sure, sure. <laughs> maybe maybe so <laughs> they they get Jack and Don out of the the bad side of the island um, just as Kong shows up and Kong starts like pounding on the wall and you know banging down the door which. During this whole scene, like, this is the first time that Kong legitimately felt huge to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, there's a good sense of scale throughout the movie. But this scene particularly, yeah. I was like, this really feels like Kong is, like, 50 feet tall. And he's, like, pounding this and breaking this door down. And the fall, the fall was shot in slow motion, and it looks amazing. This is the best sequence of Kong. Is this sequence here? Oh yeah, no. This is this is really cool. This this scene is really cool. Um I also do enjoy a bit of his uh rampage near the end of the film, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so then we kind of jump ahead a little bit. Kong is now on an oil refiner 
chip yeah. um, in one of the tanks, just kind of locked up. Yeah, sad by um, Kong. And this is where I, they, they do briefly talk about how Kong has been stripped of all of his like godlike powers and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And this is where we get the beginning of the weird change of heart for Dawn, because now she's like all like... Yeah, the movie just becomes suddenly like really sympathetic for Kong. Which doesn't, um, like, up until this point, they've been running away from Kong. Mm-hmm. See, it, it makes sense for Jack's character. Yes. Um, since he was, yeah, he was, he's kind of like a hippie environmentalist type character. It works and makes sense for him. Dawn less so. <laughs> like, Kong did fend off the, the, the snake. But at the same time, he was also a bit of a sleazy monkey. Right. And even (laughs) to that point, Kong was also just fighting off the giant snake so he could not have Don harmed and fend for his territory. Right. Yeah. So it just, yeah, it just doesn't, I, I don't think it. It was very jarring. Very, it, very it's jarring. It's just such a sudden shift. Mm-hmm. Now, like, if they showed, like, loading Kong up, and during that dawn, like, has a change of heart because they see how they're treating him or something, maybe that would help, but they don't do anything like that. It's just suddenly dawn cares. And yeah. then Don only mildly cares, and then Don is trying to run away, and then Don cares again. Yeah, like it just it it's it's very jarring. Um, it's not like how in thirty three, from what I can remember, Fay Ray always just seems to not want to be with Kong. She's remorseful at the end, but she doesn't have a connection with Kong. Right. Um, because they were still trying to, I mean, Kong in that movie is a tragic character, but I mean, at the end, they chop it up to beauty killed the beast. Whereas in this film, that line's not even mentioned. No. Um, they don't want beauty to have killed the beast. They wanted to be mankind killed the beast. Mm-hmm. So it, it just doesn't. It doesn't. I don't think it like follows through on it. Um, and like in in reference to King Kong O Five, I think it's more interesting to see, um, no, Naomi Watts or it's Emma Watson. Emma Watson is the Anne in that movie. No, um, I think it's Naomi Watts. Is it Naomi Watts? I'm pretty sure it's Naomi Watts. Okay, like she does grow to have that connection with Kong and she is remorseful. It's Carl Denham that tries to sell it as beauty killed the beast, but the way he delivers the line is more like in a dramatic, tragic way. It's very theatrical, but it's also very like, this is not a like we're not celebrating beauty killing the beast. It's, you know, Kong has died. So this film just got, I, I think that again, this film misses the mark. I think it missed in its translation of the original film, the idea of, okay, 
you have to create a sense of tragic tragedy between Anne and the and the and the beast, right? Right. I mean, it's just the issue. Just fundamentally, is more that the connection um, between them just doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. That's just the issue here. Um, which again, not helped by how kind of this, the kind of sleazy feel of some of the earlier scenes with Kong on Skull Island with her. Right. And during some interactions between Jack and Don, like they kiss and whatnot. And once again, they plan on, uh, going to one of their rooms. Yeah. But then Jack gets blue balled by the monkey. But that's because the giant scarf, like it's on Don's neck, and then it blows away while they kiss in a, you know, movie falls magic. into Kong's cage, and then suddenly it's like large enough to like be bigger than his nose, and it's like earlier Don was like the size of like your chin and maybe your mouth, and now her scarf is the size of your nose, <laughs> and then. Kong has like a whole breakdown and then Don like tries to calm him down and then he rocks the boat and she's standing on top (laughs) of the cage like an idiot. Yep. While there's literally a place where you can climb down and stand. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. She ends up falling in the cage. Kong does grab her though. Um, and then they have some interactions, and then Dawn climbs out. Which, this whole sequence just feels unnecessary. Like, why would you write a character that stupid? <laughs> it is funny, though. But, following this, uh, we're in New York on opening you, night. You skipped a prime scene. What scene? Um, Where Wilson tries to get... Uh, Jack and Don to sign the contracts to be in his show. That happened earlier. That happened a little before this. Uh uh-uh. uh. That happened right now. No. It's it's in the following it's in the following scene the following day. It's the daytime. No, that happened before. No, because the kiss is at night. She falls down at night and then the no, following it happened, day. It happens right um after like they first feed Kong, like when they first got him on the on the ship. Oh, that's right. Silly. But you I guess to, we should. I guess we should to, establish that to gotcha me. Um, they both agree to be in the show, and that kind of leads into this scene here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Jack just uh, refuses the show, tells, and then uh, tells Wilson. To basically just go screw himself and tries to convince Dawn to to leave as well. And then this is so by this point, like Wilson has kind of fallen into the Carl Denham role, but it also just doesn't fit his character. Because up until this point, he's just been a major oil company executive, and now he's suddenly a showman. It's like, hmm. That really feels like you're forcing the Carl Denham to this character. 
don't know. I felt it worked fine enough just with him being a very exploitative character. Like with him just being like willing to exploit Kong and earlier the resources as quickly and the best he could, you know? I mean, he was already like boasting to like the Petrox Corporation, the company he works for, that like, oh, we've got the big one. We've got the mother load with um, the oil promising that before he even knew if it was usable or not. That's so I fair. Think, I don't know. I think it I think it fits well enough. Yeah, I'm not sold on that idea. It it didn't feel uh, to me it didn't feel like a massive character shift. I don't know. It felt it felt pretty jarring to me. Mm. So following this we get the grand show which they change it from being inside an auditorium to outside um mm-hmm. which feels I don't know. This really makes Kong feel really, really big. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to feel about that in this story. Like when, when King Kong's, you know, fighting Godzilla, like, okay, yeah, he's got to be big. But that's a different Kong from what we're trying to tell. We're trying to tell a very personalized story, one that's, you know, down closer to Earth. Um, and I feel like the smaller Kong does a better job at that story. And Kong here just feels larger than life. Which makes sense, but also detracts, I think, from the like smaller scale story they're trying to tell between Kong and Don. I don't know. I don't know. I think I think it works for like the whole eighth wonder of the world. Uh, yeah, but see, aspect. that whole thing's not even in here. True. That 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 is true. Like this is not the eighth wonder. This is just a gas pump. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love the crown that they put on top of him. I thought that was hilarious. That is a really funny thing. <laughs> then, you know, just like in 33, reporters start taking pictures and whatnot, and Kong thinks they're attacking Dawn, um, and he breaks free. Mm. Um, though, I don't know, in this one, it feels less... He breaks I mean, free so easily. <laughs> yes. And, I don't know, I think it's because of the rapid cutting, because, like, in 33... Like, Kong, like, actually had to, like, fight to get free, and it's all one shot, maybe, like, an alternate side, but for the most part, it's just one shot. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's something about that that just felt more dramatic. This just kind of felt like, oh, he's out. Um, It just just felt too easy. Um, It did. It's also important to note that, and I don't know what it it is for 33, um, but the Skull Island sequence covers about an hour and 15 an hour and 20 minutes of this story. Mm -hmm. The movie's two hours and 14 minutes long. So there's like 45 minutes that's actually in New York. Um, which I think is partially why it feels kind of rushed here because then they like to, they, they stop the whole Kong Don thing for the Don and Jack thing. Mm hmm. So, and that's like a solid, like almost 20 minute segment. Actually, it might be closer to 10. So in all honesty, there's like 35 minutes minus credits to do the whole shebang. So they kind of rush it through, I think. Mm. Jack grabs Dawn and they run away. They end up getting on a uh, train 
Yeah. Which this opens up the movie to a beautiful miniature set. Yes. I, I want to highlight a really cool detail I noticed is that in like one of the buildings, you can see like, so they've got the lights on and you can see like the shadow of, of like a person in the building mm-hmm. and you can see the shadow actually move. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, it looks like there's like a stiff little like puppet of a per, uh, like a doll or something of a person in there. I love that detail. That's really cool. See, this kind of reminded me of the miniatures used in Ghostbusters and then in Little Shop of Horrors, mm-hmm. um, the director's cut in Ghostbusters re- in reference to the Stay Puft sequence. There's something about like the post 60s miniature city Hollywood movies that just looks really good. And I think it has to do a lot with the lighting, especially the New York miniature stuff. I think it looks really, really good. Oh, it looks Um, great. I wish there was, I honestly wish there was a bit more of it in the film. Yes, I agree. Um, And the whole train destruction sequence is really cool. Don and Jack end up escaping from the, the train and yeah. a couple, you know, probably 30 people die in the, in the process. Yeah. Kong grabs like <laughs> a random lady that isn't, that isn't Dawn and then just chucks her away. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, then they get, uh, they run to the nearest bridge, get across that where there's uh like a blockade to like fire at Kong. Yeah. And then like Kong somehow knows this. So he just kind of strolls in the water. Yeah. While Don and Jack are in a bar flirting with each other, but also Jack isn't is kind of teasing Don. This is where in, in one of the commentaries they highlight that for the whole duration of the movie they talk about getting together, but they never really do. Yeah. Um they share one kiss, one or I guess one makeout session. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really it. Yeah. Dawn keeps asking him like to get married. And even um, Wilson suggests that the two get married uh, for the whole theatrical um, element. Um, like trying to sell the idea of oh, Kong giving his woman to, to Jack. But Jack never really agrees to it and never really. Yeah, they never really get together, as you said. <laughs> so... From here, uh, Jack contacts uh, the mayor of New York and mm. is like... When he realizes hey, where Kong's going. Mm-hmm, which is the World Trade Center because it looks like his mountains. Um, he makes a deal with them that they're not going to hurt Kong. They're going to trap Kong and take him back. So he tells them. And while this all happens, Kong quietly steals Dawn again. Which she, like... It takes her so long to scream. <laughs> and it's like, why aren't you running or doing anything? You're just standing there. And yeah. then as Jack is done on the phone and walking up, that's when you scream. Also, I do want to bring up um, in some of the scenes prior to this with Kong in the miniature city. It really, really like I love the miniatures and I love the lighting, but it really felt like Kong was just a man. Yeah. That's one thing that I must 
kind of complain about Rick Baker in this movie is the character of Kong never really feels like a gorilla. No. Um, that's something that I think Toho did. The Toho Kong films did really good. And I think 33 did really well. Um, was really trying to sell that primate like right feeling. Yeah, he kind of just walks like a person for the entire like a regular person for the film. There's not really too many mannerisms of an ape outside of like the couple moments where like he beats his chest. Yes. So Kong takes Dawn to the World Trade Center and they start climbing. Once they get to the top of the building, uh, these three military guys like randomly out of nowhere show up with flamethrowers and start using flamethrowers. Um, and then Kong chucks like gas, a gas tank at them. Yeah, yeah. And it explodes. And then they cut to Jeff Bridges, who has this the look of a psychopath mm. cheering Kong on for killing people. Yeah. And then as all of this occurs, then the helicopters show up mm-hmm. with machine guns. And they gun the monkey down. Yeah. Um, during this whole sequence, the compositing goes to dog doo-doo. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, suddenly the helicopters are really close to Kong's head as it's a close-up of Kong's head, but they're just flying and kong's ignoring them and the camera Um, tracking is a bit off for a couple shots as well yeah they end up like reusing a shot of kong knocking down a helicopter and like it's very obvious that it is Mm. reusing the same shot yeah there's a lot of issues with this final fight it's it is definitely not nearly up to par with right um, and also personally i just kind of think like the trade centers yeah it's kind of just a less exciting looking set piece Mm -hmm. than the empire state building like having kong like like grappled onto that or even tokyo tower and um king kong escapes finale that's that's an interesting visual um, right that really works with the you know kong's a giant ape um so that works um, and it's really cool and fitting. And here it's, he's just standing on top of a building and then he jumps to the next big building. And he's just standing right. on top. Of it. It's just, it's fine. It's just visually not as interesting as the Empire State Building or even Tokyo Tower. And I think the stakes also kind of are, are less there, like impactful because like, Don can kind of just stroll around the building. Yeah. Um, whereas with... They're at the very top of the Empire State Building in the original and uh, yeah. the 05 film. And so, like, she can't really move. She's kind of stuck unless she starts to climb down from the top of the tower. Right. Um, And then, like you said, the fact that Kong has to, like, grapple to the side of the building that alone is like very iconic i think yeah i mean it's the most iconic visual of the film (laughs) yeah and then like the whole like kong falling off of the empire or the 
World Trade Center just doesn't really make a lot of sense because how would that happen? Like he just fell flat on the top of the roof. He's <laughs> and not. And then he just rolls off. over. Yeah, he just rolls over. It's like, well, and then there's the- a very bad composite of him falling. Oh yeah. <laughs> but before we talk more about you know the the fall, Kong is a blood sprinkler. Oh when yeah. They they brutalize the monkey. It looks horrifying. <laughs> This might be the most gruesome death Kong has ever experienced. It probably is. I haven't seen King Kong live, so I don't know if he gets brutalized in that. Maybe. I, I feel like anything I, I, I feel like anything can happen in that movie, so I'm gonna have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> so Eventually, the guns knock him down, and he's laying there, and Don, like, walks up. And there's a really bad composite of Don, like, touching Kong. Um, I don't know why the composites just at this ending fight on the Empire State, just or not Empire State, World Trade Center, just look awful. Mm. Um, and then Kong rolls off and, like, appears out of nowhere in the in the... In the next shot, like he just pops up and then falls down. Yeah. Um. And then we have a very I love how they did this. The whole Kong's now like lying on the ground, and you can hear his heart. I think I love, that's. A, I love how the okay, genuinely, uh, probably my, one of my favorite shots in this film is like immediately after he's fallen down. Literally, this basically the moment he's on the ground, we get a shot of reporters just on top of him taking photos on top of the giant beast. You know? Yeah, and then I, you I think see... that's a brilliantly poignant shot. Um, yeah, in the film, and then you see like police officers having to come up and like grab them and pull them off. Right, um, even in death, the creature is still being exploited mm-hmm. by man. Mm-hmm. Um, though suddenly Don just shows up, teleports to the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's like, bruh, like you are on the top of the World Trade Center. There's no way you got, like, they were being Jeff dramatic. Bridges, Jeff Bridges takes longer to get there. Yeah. And he was in the other tower. <laughs> but we, I love, I love this sequence with the heart and it's slowly stopping. I think that's a very, yeah, um, very good sequence. Mm-hmm. And then the heart stops beating, and then Don's surrounded by reporters, and Jack is just standing there watching. Um, yeah. In the original version, Jack walks away. There's also some cut dialogue about how if Kong dies, like they'll forever like only view- remember that, like that'll be in their history. So it might not be best to have them do that like get together after if Kong dies mm-hmm. and then we get our credits hey don't and... worry Jack he's just in a heartbeat for like 10 years <laughs> or a coma sorry I'm stupid so yeah that's uh, that's King Kong yep not to be confused with King Kong or King Kong now okay do you have any more um, I, I've got my like final thoughts and then like I want to talk about the copyright a little bit. 
Okay. Um, don't think I have anything that I haven't already mentioned. Okay. Then I guess we could wrap up on our final thoughts and then kind of segue into that copyright stuff. Yep. Sounds good. Well, at least I guess for, for my final thoughts overall, I, I genuinely believe that this movie is visually interesting and it's stunning at points. Um, the sets are great and the scale is amazing at some points. I love, like you mentioned earlier, how grand the movie is. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do think it misses all of the right grooves that the 33 film has. Because they they start off the film to try to be something different, but then they just fall right back into what 33 is. Mm -hmm. And they never leave that. From like yeah. the 35-minute the mark to the end of the movie, it's just right there with how the original film is. Yeah. It is fun to see like a Hollywood-budgeted suit. I think the suit looks really good. Um, in contrast to like the suit in King Kong versus Godzilla or King Kong Escapes, mm -hmm. um, and like the whole cast seems to be enjoying themselves, but none of them are really like none of these characters. I think even remotely get close to Fay Ray or uh, Robert Armstrong or uh, Bruce Cabot. Like mm -hmm. it just they they aren't they don't have the right material. Mm -hmm. I cannot stand the change uh, from Carl Denham to Fred Wilson. I think that's easily the worst part about this story. Mm -hmm. um, I think that really hurts the film. And I think the lack of creatures for Kong to fight just leads to Kong not having a lot to do outside of being a creep and playing with Dawn for an hour. Even when like Kong shows up for the, the, log scene like it's just kind of out of nowhere yeah it's very sudden and it almost feels like they're struggling to find stuff for kong to do that keeps him as a interesting aspect of the film mm -hmm. um they're re they really banked on the idea of the the relationship between don and kong but i don't think that relationship works right but that it's kind of one of the weaker elements of the film. Mm -hmm. And what's your final thoughts? So for me, I don't know. I, I'll give it this. I, I definitely found it to be a pleasant surprise overall. I was not, I'd, I'd heard mixed things about this film at absolute best. And in some, and in a lot of cases I'd heard of it being like an absolute travesty. Mm -hmm. So I was expecting a complete slog of a film that you know, wasn't going to be very interesting at all. So for what it's worth, the film kept me engaged for pretty much the entire runtime. For most of the runtime, I'd say. It took a little bit to get going, but I think once like you kind of get to Skull Island, the film is at least a fun... It's, it's a fun adventure film. Um, like you said, it's it's very grand, but I feel like it could it could be more grand with you know the lack of the dinosaurs and the lack of the um you know the changing the Empire State Building to the Twin Towers, I think kind of holds the film back mm -hmm. with that grand scale. 
um, and the wonder, I guess, of King Kong. Yeah, I to to that point, I think something that King Kong has that just is something natural to it is it's a very theatrical movie, right? Yeah. I mean, in the film, they are very theatrical with like what ends up happening to Kong with the exploits. Right. So Kong just naturally has that theatrical element to this character. And they tried to make a more realistic, like down to earth story. And I don't know if that necessarily works for Kong. Mm-hmm. But like overall, I felt the film was all right as a remake of the original. It hit the beats well enough to be all right, but I don't think this is anything terribly special as a remake. And I don't know, I don't know if this would hold up on rewatch very well for me. Mm-hmm. But I guess I can't confirm that until I rewatch it. So this is true. Um, so take that for what you will. So would you like to kind of explore the copyright further, or do you want to go and? Do our rankings. Uh, I feel like we should do our rankings first, given we're on the the final thoughts train anyways. Okay. So let's start at our least favorite and go to our favorite. Alrighty. This is our... Oh, wait. I... Uh-oh. <laughs> I, uh, so, like, I, I wrote down my ranking, but I forgot about a movie. Womp womp. And I'm pretty sure I forgot about this movie last week. I think I'm I I think I just forget about this movie because it's god awful. Is it number 5 Son of Kong? It's number 5 Son of Kong. <laughs> That's funny. I like I guess I forget this movie exists when I try to rank the King Kong movies. No, nah, that's fair. I kind of forget Son of Kong as a movie as well. I mean, it barely is. It's like 2 minutes over the like See, Academy bare minimum. See, the reason I remember it for this ranking is because I know it's last place. (laughs) So, so far, I think we're in agreement. Yeah. And then for me at number four, I'm curious if we'll be in in agreement on this. I've got King Kong 1976. I as well have King Kong 1976. It's better than Son of Kong. Yeah. I think it's all right. Mm-hmm. It just, like, even for someone like me who's not, like, a big fan of the original, I don't think it holds up compared to the original. Um, yeah. It it doesn't hold a candle to that, like, such an iconic film. Yes, I agree. Um, so this is where we're going to differentiate. Yeah, speaking of which, at number three, I've got King Kong 1933, my very me, controversial have... opinion. For me, I have King Kong Escapes. Mm -hmm. That's my number two. My number two is King Kong versus Godzilla. Which for me is placed right up at number one. Which is 1933 for me. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we agree on what is bad, but then for what is good or okay, that's where we we differentiate our opinions. I mean, I don't even think that 76 is bad i just think it's okay at best okay like, that's fair it's i mean it's i don't a, it's a watchable movie i didn't mind it i was if anything like i said pleasant surprise 
I thought it was going to be awful. (laughs) I'm curious for whenever we inevitably cover King Kong Lives and King Kong uh, 2005, um, I'm curious how those will end up. I'm very curious as well because I have never seen King Kong Lives and I have not watched King Kong 2005 in about a decade. Same here. Actually, I don't think I've seen either in about a decade. And like in 05's case, I don't, I don't, I kind of fell asleep in like the last 10 ish minutes. Mm -hmm. So even though I had, I'd seen like the ending on YouTube like years prior, I technically have not actually seen the full film. Oh. Technically, because there's probably like 10 or so minutes that I have, that I felt that I was asleep during. So we basically are entering un- – well, I guess with this we entered in it's not uncharted. uncharted. Well, for me, this film is uncharted territory, yeah. So here but we 05 are. I guess. Like, I guess just uh, – 05 is a bit of a rediscovery for me, I guess. <laughs> same here, same here. And then the extended cut, when whenever we do that someday, will be entirely new for me. For which one? Both? Oh, both, yeah. This and uh, five. Yeah, because I haven't seen the ex- the TV extended cut of this one either, so that's going to be brand new to me as well. Yeah. So let's go ahead. I'm gonna r- let's wrap up on the copyright story, um, and then we'll wrap. Uh, we'll finish things up here. Feel free to go ahead. So, following the events of the Universal Paramount RKO De Laurentiis situation. Um, the Supreme Court decided that the Marion C. Cooper estate actually owned the rights to King Kong and thus gave Richard Cooper um, the ownership of the character. Oh, I also have to do cast and crew after this, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then as soon as Richard Cooper got the rights, he sold them straight to Universal. So then Universal acquired the rights to king kong and that is who has held them since that's how 2005 got produced in relation to king kong lives i believe that has to do with the fact that de laurentis signed on to their film the clause that they had the rights to produce a sequel and i Mm. imagine they had a 10-year gap to do it um, I don't know. That'll be research I conduct for King Kong Lives, but that's my theory that that's what they do. Now, in the 90s, Universal sued Nintendo for Donkey Kong. That's when the court then added a stipulation to the King Kong copyright that the name Kong is fair use public domain. In the 90s, what also happened is the novelization that was the original work fell into the public domain. So now you have the name Kong, which is synonymous with the giant ape. Um, Even in 1976, you don't say, see King Kong on the whole stage. You see Kong. Mm. So the name Kong can be used freely by anybody on top of that. The story elements of the 1933 novelization are also public domain. To adapt the original movie that was owned by the Cooper estate, 
you would have to go through Universal to license that. Now, sometime in this time frame, RKO, the library of that got sold to Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers officially owns the 1933 film and Son of Kong. So now the current situation as of the 90s is Warner Brothers owns distribution rights to the original 33 Kong and Son of Kong. Mm -hmm. The novelization, which was the original work, is public domain. The movie, which does have differences to the novelization, that story and copyright is owned by Universal. Paramount owns the distribution rights to the 76 movie, and through a contract with John Beck, Toho, and Universal, Universal owns King Kong Escapes and King Kong vs. Godzilla's international distribution rights forever. Dino De Laurentiis has ownership of King Kong Lives. Um, like I said, that's probably because they had the rights to do a sequel. And then in 2005, Universal did their remake of 33 with Peter Jackson because they can do that because they own that story, which is why it is a direct adaptation of the the 33 movie. Films like The Mighty Kong are public domain usage of the character through the novelization Mm -hmm. and the use of the name Kong. NECA's King Kong action figures and plushies are via the King Kong novelization, not licensed through Paramount, Universal, Toho, or anything like that. And I imagine Warner Brothers would have ownership of the 33 design, I think. Mm -hmm. Then you have Joe DeBito's Kong King of Skull Island, which is a sequel to the 33 novelization which is where a lot of your new King Kong merchandise has come from. Um, the Mezco stuff was via that, a lot of that stuff. Any novel, or any comic book adaptation is all Kong because Kong is a public domain name and you can do a giant gorilla. You just can't do the 33 movie story. This goes to where my biggest argument with people is. <clears throat> Kong Skull Island... <coughs> while taking clear story elements from the Paramount film and having Skull Island, a Triceratops horn, a giant monkey, and his name is Kong, is not King Kong. If you're doing a King Kong-a-thon, you do not have to and should not do Kong Skull Island. Kong Skull Island is just simply a Kongsploitation film just as much as Ape or the Mighty Peking Man or Yeti Giant of the 20th Century or Conga or Conga TNT or Ape versus Monster. The only difference is it's a big budget Hollywood movie. And you will never see the name King Kong said in the movies to avoid that copyright issue. Now, I know. On the Funko Pops, it says King Kong, and in the novelization, there's one mention of the name King Kong and foreign. There is also some marketing material and press material that calls him King Kong. But in the movies themselves, they will not refer to him as King Kong. They never will. Um, and that is pr- probably due to the clause of. They're clearly not adapting the original 33 
story from the novelization, King Kong could fall under Universal's ownership. <laughs> and at one point, Universal did have some actual development in Kong Skull Island back when it was still at Universal. It begun as a Peter Jackson sequel, Son of Kong, that Adam Wingard was attached to direct. As the film progressed, eventually it turned into a Jordan Vogue Roberts film, and then eventually Legendary moved production from Warner or from Universal to Warner Brothers, and then the MonsterVerse was born. Skull Island, Godzilla vs. Kong, Godzilla Kong, and Monarch Legacy of Monsters are all under the public domain version of the character. Thus, he will continue to be called Kong and not King Kong. He will not get the label of the Eighth Wonder of the World. He will not be called King Kong. He might be called Kong as... They might say Kong is King, like they say in Skull Island, but they will not say King Kong. Mm. And thus ends my TED Talk on the King Kong copyright. <laughs> as for your cast and crew, Rick Baker, who was the suit actor for King Kong appeared in movies such as Octoman, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Also, he didn't appear in these mostly. He was special effects artist. Right. Um, Empire Strikes Back, Men in Black, the 1998 Mighty Joe Young remake. And here we go. The Ring, The Ring 2, <laughs> King Kong 2005, Tron Legacy, and Rings. Peter Cullen, that worked on the King Kong voices. Um, also, the roar was partly used from the T-Rex from the Land Unknown. Um, that's a stock roar that appeared in Duel, Jaws. Um, the list is... Various other films. Yes. <laughs> Peter Cullen also appeared in Gremlins, as he did voice work for that. But he's probably, probably most well-known for a specific role, though. <laughs> he was in GoBots, he did the voices for Predator, and most well-known for voicing Octopus Supreme for Transformers. Yeah, that one. Mm -hmm. As for your actual cast, you have Jeff Bridges, Bridges as Jack Prescott. That was in Tron, The Last Unicorn, Starman, Iron Man, and Tron Legacy. Charles Grodin, who played Fred Wilson was in an uncredited role in the 1954 Disney adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Jessica Lange played Dewan. John Randolph played Captain Ross. Rene Abujoninos, who played Roy Bagley, was in Star Trek V, The Undiscovered Country, and The Last Unicorn. Ed Lauter, who played Carnerham, was in Cujo. Your crew included John Gullerman as a director who also directed King Kong Lives, Lorenzo Stemple Jr., the screenplay uh, writer, who worked on the 1966 Batman television series. And then lastly, you have Dino De Laurentiis as the producer, who also worked on Bar Barbarella, Orca, Flash Gordon, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, King Kong Lives, and David Lynch's Dune. A long history of producing. <laughs> yeah, 
he he has a very long list. That's just the stuff that's remotely connected to kaiju, tokusatsu, or just science fiction in general. Right. And with that, I think it is perfect now to segue into the final segment of the podcast, the most noblest of podcasting traditions. Do you know what I'm talking about, Rex? Oh, are we going to link ourselves? We are. And to start us off, hello, I'm Elijah, and I have a kaiju and tokusatsu problem. Joking aside, I am Elijah Thomas. I am part of the rotating hosts for Monsters with Attitude. You can check us out on YouTube where we do monthly live streams talking kaiju entertainment. You can also head over to Facebook and join our Facebook group. It's a great place to talk to like-minded people. I'm also a writer. I've written for GodzillaMovies.com, appeared in Kaiju Ramen Magazine, and currently I write for Kaiju United. My most recent article is an interview with Donnie Winter about his previous work in the fandom. And my writing has also appeared in the book Giant Bug Cinema, A Monster Kid's Guide from Bear Manor Media, where I wrote about Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. I'm also a filmmaker and YouTuber. You can check out my stuff on my YouTube channel, ET13 Productions, where you can see some of my short films and older YouTube videos. A full-length interview with Donnie Winter is now on there along with a playlist that features all of my appearances on YouTube. I do plan on getting new videos out soon, so definitely hold off and, you know, check that out whenever it comes out. I am also in a kaiju movie, a little-known film called Zillafoot from 2021. I made a brief cameo in the film as Skywatcher number 2. It's got a rating of 3.7 out of 10 on IMDb, so if you want to watch more kaiju, you can buy the Blu-ray on srscinema.com, or the DVD from any major online retailer. Or just watch it on for free on Tubi with ads or on Prime. Um, it's also worthy to note now, uh, stay tuned on titanicreations.com for pre-orders for Yungori, the six-inch articulated figure. Um, when more information comes out, I will absolutely uh, share that and talk about it and promote that because I, I did have a hand in that. <laughs> you can also check out my action figure photography on my Instagram at et13 underscore productions and my ex, the artist formerly known as Twitter. Thanks, Danny. At the same handle. And Rex, where can the lovely people find you at? Well, dear listeners, you can find me on YouTube at Rexina, on Twitter at Rex underscore Xenomorph, and on Instagram, Rex underscore Xena. And if you want to check out some of my writing, go take a look at the Tokusatsu Network. And as for the podcast, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. That boosts our ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't actually. That's a lie. I'm literally using a MacBook. Literally using a MacBook. But you can rate us on Spotify now. That's something you can do. If you want to stay up to date with all things Kaiju Conversation related, follow us on Twitter at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. If you're like me before podcasting and you don't have any social media, fuck you. You can email us at kaijuconversation at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, you know the drill. And as always, we'll read your reviews on air for everyone to hear or any fan mail you have. If you've got a question for us, send it to us. 
If you have a comment, question, anything, just send it our way. We'll take it. We also have a Teespring store. Eventually, we'll have original artwork on there. Once I'm done with my projects, I'm going to see about doing something about that. But for now, you can sport an awesome, our awesome logo on a t-shirt or maybe even a, on a coffee mug. If you'd like to chat with us, check out our Discord server full of others that have similar interests to you. Most recently, in our general one chat, there was a discussion about a phrase somebody saw on Reddit called Jump the Zegra. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, with that, I think we really jumped the Zegra for this episode. It's a great community full of great people. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you can be notified anytime we upload a video. We sometimes post exclusives to the channel like bloopers for episodes or minisodes talking about news or other subjects. We also have an interview with Mechagodzilla designer Jared Kurchevsky on the channel. I definitely butchered his name. I'm so sorry. And a huge thanks to Rex for editing all of these episodes and all the other content we upload. His links can be found in the description below. Along with Rex, we'd like to give a huge thanks and shout out to Danny DeManna of the Godzilla Novelization Project for his amazing vocals on our theme song. You can support him by following him on Twitter at Danzilla93 underscore GNP or visit his website, GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. And a huge thanks to Grattan Conwell from the podcast Giant Monster BS for composing the music for our theme song. You can support him by following the podcast on Twitter at Giant Monster BS or on any podcast platform under the name Giant Monster BS. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here. So thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys. Bye. We are set. We are in debt. There's nothing to sweat. Life's too short now, baby. Too now.